اول اشي لازم نمتلكه المبادرة اسمعين فنستقط دارتنا ديها محاضرة احنا بمصارة اللي من زمان تباتونا فيها بنادوها مامرة وعدم وعلي Good afternoon, you are listening to the South and West Asia and North Africa, the Sona Region Radio on KPFK, and I'm Ankina Ghassian with Soraya Zarouk. Thanks for tuning in. Today we look at the aftermath of the explosion in Lebanon, the international aid response, and the role of corruption in the political system that culminated in this disaster. We also look at solutions to Lebanon's electrical problems. Yegia Tashjian is a regional analyst, researcher, and the regional officer of Women in War, a gender-based think tank. He is a contributor to various local and regional newspapers and presenter of the Turkey Today program in Radio Voice of Van. He founded the New Eastern Politics Forum and blog in 2010. Thanks for joining us, Yegia. It has been a month and one week after the explosion. Are you able to take us through what you and your community experienced when reflecting on the events of that day? Thank you. I can say that we are still traumatized, but I will just make a quick review from the first or the second day where I went with some friends, especially in the damaged areas um, like Marmechel, Jemeize, until uh, Burj Hamoud. Uh, these areas are very cosmopolitan areas where not just Lebanese live, also a lot of like uh, ambassadors, students, activists, journalists, and when it comes to my community, almost 20% of the population are Armenian, especially in Burj Hamoud uh, and so on. So the community was heavily affected. The shops are completely damaged. There are at least five churches in the areas. In my neighborhood, I'm saying, uh, Armenian churches, they were completely uh, damaged. The centers damaged, the shops. So it's a huge, not just economic uh, loss, but also psychological uh, loss. Some community centers, they started to send social workers, psychiatrists to the uh, people. There was also mobilization on the community level. So I, I will just talk about the Armenian community, not just because it's the same in all communities. And the NGOs played a huge role, the political parties, the churches. And then small committee was formed where the political parties and the old uh, three Armenian communities the evangelicals, Catholics, and the Apostolics, they formed a committee to try to reconstruct all the damaged buildings, the houses, and the shops. So it was, uh, there was a, hu- a huge budget. There was also fundraising in, I think, in U.S., in Canada, uh, in other European countries. Even Armenia sent uh, humanitarian aid to Lebanon. So there was mobilization on the community uh, level. Uh, why I'm saying about the community, because on state or government level, still we haven't seen anything. And I'm not, I'm not being optimistic also to see anything from them. So such community level initiatives uh, were taken from the first day and still are being continued. So yeah, yeah, and along those lines, uh, last week there was a donors conference in Beirut organized by French President Emmanuel Macron and the United Nations. Uh, what was the outcome of this conference? Uh, was, and what kind of international aid? Well, you already spoke about what kind of international yes. aid you know, on the ground. Uh, Did it bring anything new? The main idea was to revive the SEDER initiative. So the SEDER initiative was an initiative to give huge loans to uh, the Lebanese government in order to bring investments or at least invest in the infrastructure uh, and also bring reforms, especially in the banking sector. I can say, like, from a political angle, that uh, this conference that or the initiative that Macron did was successful, but it is still on the paper because until now the Lebanese side 
or the sites are not responding to it uh, positively. And also this initiative or this reform package, which I can say was a condition. There were conditions, for example, to reform the banking sector, uh, to fight against the corruption, uh, something which I can say it's very difficult in Lebanon because almost all the political leaders are corrupt. So how they will reform themselves? I'm not very optimistic. I mean, I have to be optimistic because this is the last chance for Lebanon to revive as a country. Otherwise, it's now it's that country. You know, we don't have economy. We don't have anything functioning in the country. This few days also, we have the COVID-19 crisis. I mean, like almost 800 cases today. Uh, this was uh, a record. Uh, also, we have like 230 cases in the Rumi prison. So in this prison, there are thousands of prisoners. And I mean, this is like a time bomb. So in addition of this old corruption and the financial crisis, I mean, uh, this is the only chance that the Lebanese government and the British accept Macron initiative, but also because of the conditions, to some extent it is politicized. Okay, I can understand that, uh, but it is very difficult because of the U.S. sanctions also. Let's not forget that a few days ago, the U.S. Treasury Department, they sanctioned some uh, former ministers close to Hezbollah. So I think this will complicate things more. Well, in 2001, there was a law proposed in Parliament, uh, the Lebanese Parliament, to create a national body, a centralized one, that responds to disasters, provides relief efforts. That law, I think, is still in limbo. So does this put in context how, how you would characterize the government's response to this disaster following the explosion? This is like a committee that was formed in 2001, uh, it, it's not functionable. Like uh, even in the 2006 crisis, when there was a war, uh, war the Israelis bombed Beirut and southern Beirut, it was not functionable uh, committee, and the response was very slow. I can say. I mean, even like I didn't see any high officials uh, visiting these neighborhoods. Uh, for example, I saw some Armenian officials, some ministers. They tried to visit, but still, you know, like the people were demanding much more of it. It's not just uh, making the show off and uh, visiting or meeting the people. The people were demanding much more of this. Uh, I mean, part of the corruption is because like we have such committee, committees that were formed after disasters and not before the disasters, because you have to build something before the disasters to like assume if something, a natural disaster happens in Lebanon. Now, we don't have anything to respond to it. Usually the Lebanese or the Lebanese government or the authorities, they always try to make a committee or an organization after a disaster. And then, for example, we hear that there is nothing, but those who are uh, members in this committee, they are getting paid, but they are not doing anything. So this is also part of the corruption. Right. And uh, I want to talk a little more about corruption later, also about the economic condition. I want to ask you a question about the protests now. They followed immediately after the explosion, but there were massive protests in Beirut, in Lebanon, in October of 2019. The protesters were demanding electoral reform and change in the political system. What system exists now, and what system are the protesters demanding, envisioning for the future of Lebanon? Now we don't have a system. Uh... That's very pessimistic answer, but this is the reality. Uh, coming to the protest movement, which actually started in October 17, or it exploded in October 17, initially it was very successful. 
because I can say that the whole segments of the Lebanese segments, the communities, they united under the banner of reform. It started with the idea to reform the system. Of course, for example, there were divisions, and this is like very normal to have divisions when you are in a revolutionary mood. Okay, some are accusing, especially the authorities are accusing that this was a leaderless revolution. Okay, most of the revolutions were leaderless. I mean, the French Revolution was leaderless. There were many demands. For example, uh, most of the activists that were NGO affiliated and so on, or who are more liberal, they were demanding to reform the system. That, okay, we have political sectarianism, but actually political sectarianism is not a problem. The problem was the corruption or those people, political parties represented through their sect are the corrupt people and not the sect or the communities are the corrupt. We have the leftists, or some people, they uh, accuse them being radicals. I don't see them as radicals, but leftists were demanding more down-top revolution, like to topple all the system. Some of them were also, they were influenced by the Arab Spring uh, demands and slogans to topple the regime and so on. This demand is very difficult because the problem with the complexity in Lebanon is that especially some Western journalists, they also fall in this trap. But it is not easy to make a revolution or to topple the regime in Lebanon. Uh, there is a nice book about Lebanon, I think, written by David Hurst. He says uh, his, the title is Beware of Small States Lebanon, the Battleground of the Middle East. Lebanon has always been a reflection of the Middle Eastern problems, and the Middle Eastern problem has always been a reflection of the Lebanese problem. We have this uh, political sectarianism, we have the corruption, and these two are there is an intermarriage. Both of them are married. So it's very difficult. If you will try to reform the system, it means that the same people that are ruling this country for 30 years, they will try to reform themselves, which is impossible. If there will be a revolution, it will not be a bloodless revolution. It will be a bloody revolution because there are some communities or some political parties that they prefer to see the country burned rather than see themselves out of the uh, system. So within this complexity is very difficult. There were also the demands that many people actually put the demands about the electoral uh, reform. This is very important. But the problem is that there were two demands within this demand. The first saying that let's have an uh, electoral law, but out of the scope of sectarian scope. That is, for example, uh, the quotas should be removed. For example, if there are six Armenian MPs, it should be without the quotas. In this case, for example, I think that the Armenians will lose a lot. The Christians also will lose a lot because, I mean, the Christians are now less than the 40% of the population. Let's be realistic. And if uh, we'll have a non-political sectarianized electoral law, it means that one or two political parties will be ruling the country. Another opinion is that, okay, let's have a new electoral law where we'll try to reform the current electoral law and not bring something new. For example, try to have, some, some are saying that each community will choose its own candidates. And this is going to the extreme because instead of having loyalty to the state, we are having loyalty to our sector and communities. So I don't, I don't know. These two opinions are very extreme. And I think a compromise solution can be something in between. And uh, as far as, you know, having a representative government, did this start after the civil war or does this go back to 1920 or both? I can say a bit both, but it was like in, from 1943 to 1990, it was an oral agreement. 
to have representative that's uh, in 1990s uh, it was written in the tariff uh, agreement but mm -hmm. in 2008 when there was the doha agreement where there was a mini civil war in beirut and the surrounding area some communities started to have a veto power in the uh, government that is no matter what will be the result of the elections the whole the communities and the majority of the political parties will be represented in this government. It means that we don't have an opposition, so there is no check and balance power. This is why I said there is no system in Lebanon, because in order to have a political system, you should have a check and balance, a parliament, at least, or a group in the parliament opposing the government, or at least monitoring the government. We don't have anyone monitoring the government. Well, to shift a little bit uh, for the sake of time, uh, uh, the economy you mentioned before, the economy had collapsed, and um, this was, I think, before even the pandemic um, and before the blast. Uh, can you explain to us what's going on with the economy, why it collapsed, and what happened after the explosion? Many people, including me, we were surprised that the economy collapsed now and not a few years ago. Because the government or the authorities, I guess, and not just the government, uh, they were trying to suspend like to postpone the economic collapse by getting huge loans, some of loans from uh, the dollar, especially the Western and the Gulf uh, states. The economic collapse because we don't have an industry. We don't have anything to export. Uh, we just export sometimes our political sectarianism to the other Arab worlds, but we don't have anything to export. Uh, Lebanon is a service-based country. That is, we have the banking system and the tourism. In uh, October uh, 2019, when the protest uh, movement started, which was a result of the corruption and so on, uh, the tourism sector was affected heavily. So I'm not saying that tourism tourist sector was affected due to, to the protest, but this was the reality that because there was also violence in the streets, so people started not coming to Lebanon. And because also we don't have infrastructure. Uh, then the banking sector was hit. This was uh, like a big shock for us because we always trusted the banking sector. Um, for years, we haven't trusted our authorities, but the banking sector was our holy church or the mosque. And then when this sector uh, was uh, destroyed to some extent, so we lost the trust. People started to uh, remove their money. And for 10 days, the banks were closed. There were a lot of reports that within and these billions of dollars were actually just evaporated from the Lebanese banks. Of course, these were like uh, rich people, the authorities, politicians, something that this money were transferred to Switzerland or uh, other European countries. Um, almost $10 billion, we're saying. And now the central bank has an almost $17.5 billion in its uh, reserve, which is nothing. So after, uh, with the corona pandemic, uh, the airport was closed, uh, the port was semi-functional, uh, things became like much worse. So the Lebanese currency now lost 80% of its value with respect to the dollars. The hotels are closed. I mean, I can't see any hotel now open. Uh, the restaurants almost closed. So nothing was functioning in the country. I mean, I can just say, for example, uh, if someone has two or three children and will try to buy a milk for them, a packet of milk used to cost $10. If I'm saying $1 to 1,500 Lebanese lira, which is the official rate. Uh, now in the black market, it is more than 8,000 Lebanese lira. So the packet of milk, if I'm trying to multiply with 1,500, now it costs about $40. So just imagine 
if now our salaries value around $100 or $150, this is the middle class I'm saying. So I have to pay almost half of my salary to the milk of my kids. And if my kids are trying to attend the school, it is disaster. I mean, uh, I can see myself after a few months, we are in the edge of starvation because the central bank also said that they will no more back the price of the bread or gasoline and so on. So this is a disaster. And the explosion of the port, it was like the knife in the heart. So it just killed everything. Uh, Lebanon is definitely a miracle, but in order to revive, it will take years, if not decades. So yeah, it's a hopeless case, but still I'm trying to be optimistic. Thank you, Yerya. Yerya Tashjan is a regional analyst, researcher, and the regional officer of Women in War, a gender-based think tank. He is a contributor to various local and regional newspapers and presenter of the Turkey Today program in Radio Voice of Bonn. He founded the New Eastern Politics Forum and blog in 2010. You are listening to Swana Region Radio on independent and listener-sponsored KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM San Diego, and streaming live on kpfk.org. I am Ankina Rassian with my co-host Soraya Zarouk, and we're looking at post-disaster efforts in Lebanon and the political, economic, and systemic challenges there. Soraya? We are joined now by Manal Kahale and Elizabeth Boulos of Light for Lebanon to talk about the problem of electrical power and solutions to it after the largest non-nuclear explosion in history tore through dense residential and commercial areas of Beirut, leaving more than 500,000 residents in immediate need of basic support. Manal Kahale is a Lebanese lighting designer and a partner of Light for Lebanon. She studied landscape architecture and holds a master's degree in lighting design from Parsons in NYC. Elizabeth Boulos is a Lebanese lawyer trainee and legal consultant of Light for Lebanon. She studied law at the Université St. Joseph in Beirut and holds three years of experience in a corporate law firm in Beirut. Thank you both for joining us. Can you describe the root causes of the problems with the electrical power grid in Lebanon and the impact of the explosion on it? First of all, thank you for having us. So Lebanon has always had problems with electricity and those problems have gone from bad to worse. And uh, those are due to, first of all, the infrastructure, the infrastructure that is not being maintained properly and a government, a state that is offering an obsolete solution like building, for example, more power plants, which has already been proven not to be as efficient with this type of infrastructure. Then uh, there's also, we've had, we have a problem with the high demand in oil and gas, which is much needed to power the existing plants, as well as the private generators, adding even more depth and expenses on a personal level. We also, like prior to the blast to top it all off, uh, residents were receiving only two hours of electricity per day. And uh, following up with the economical crisis, with the revolution, with the banking crisis, the COVID-19, this was all. Uh, this was all just to top it off. People cannot even afford anymore to buy batteries or even candles to light up their homes, since there was also an emergency, chaotic reaction where people rushed to buy all of that and stock in homes. And um, this is basically what we're trying to uh, tackle. This is the problem we're trying to uh, confront. 
Like there is even a, a further problem to that, which is the generous donations that people have been offering to Lebanon yeah. in terms of oil and gas. The countries have been really generous with offering oil and gas to Lebanon. And that has somewhat helped with uh, the issue of electricity, but it is still not enough considering that post Beirut blast, uh, there's a lot of electrical infrastructure in domestic areas that was destroyed as well as in commercial areas. A lot of street poles that have been destroyed that are not functioning properly. And there's just a whole uh, a state of despair with respect to everything related to the electrical sector in Lebanon. Taking into account that, for example, the private generators that people rely upon when there is no electricity are uh, very expensive, controlled by a politically backed mafia, and uh, just very expensive on this residents of Lebanon in general, who usually have to pay the bills of the private generators twice a month and the bills of the Electricité du Liban, so the state-owned power plant, uh, maybe once a month or once every three months with interests if they decided not to provide you with the means of payment, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a really messed up situation in this respect. And all of those payments, they, they're not even with a guarantee of having power provided in your homes. Yeah. So it's just added expenses to everybody. So to, to give you like a, a more uh, rounded number of what the electricity sector has done to Lebanon, it accounts for 40% of Lebanon's national debt. These are a number dating back to 2016. So just to give you an idea of how far we've gone, people are buying kerosene lamps, which are, have proven to be very toxic and very dangerous uh, in homes and residential areas in order to just bring a bit of light into their homes. Yeah, and this problem, of course, short term is, uh, lighting and electricity but there's also there's a problem there where the fridges are not functioning anymore food cannot be stored there are an immediate need uh, like mentioned by area where all with all the ngos that are um, coming in to help they need to provide fresh food that can be consumed in one day which is not not a long-term solution thank you can you talk about the solutions that light for lebanon is putting into place so Light for Lebanon, uh, first of all, Light for Lebanon is a project that was born maybe three weeks ago, and it is in partnership with Lightreach, who, who is an NGO based in New York that has had a lot of experience already with those type of relief, with this type of relief. They have uh, provided solar solutions in Haiti and in Puerto Rico, and they are providing guidance and uh, uh, guidance in terms of the products that will be needed and how to get the community involved in such a project so we can be able to stretch it out on the longer term. They're also providing a platform for fundraising in order to be able to purchase the products uh, through donations and bring them to Lebanon or buy them from Lebanon as the case may be. And uh, so we are providing solar lighting solutions. We're not providing solar panels. We're not providing solar electricity. It's really just solar lighting, uh, just to bring a solution to the immediate need for light in a lot of residential areas in the destroyed parts of Beirut. Exactly, and we'll be tackling this in three levels. There's gonna be the residential level, which we will be um, distributing solar lanterns solar lighting, which people could place outside during the, the day. The sun is free. There is no generators. There is no government. There is nothing involved. They just charge them out outside in the sun, under the sun, and then they can use it after hours to study, to use, 
to just live at night. And uh, part of the people will be helping in those quick reliefs are, for example, the people who have uh, some mental health issues, uh, deaf individuals. So people who really have a lot of difficulty living in the dark, for example, deaf individuals cannot communicate, they can't sign in the dark, which means that they have a lot of trouble communicating. Uh, people with mental health illness, illnesses, we've encountered people who were telling us that they are so afraid of living in the dark that they can't sleep and they're, they're sweating and they're having uh, panic episodes, etc. So it's, it's been really hard on a lot of very vulnerable and already marginalized communities in Lebanon. And these are some of the communities that we're going to be tackling first and foremost once we start our relief effort. Yeah. And then we have uh, two more levels, which is the step two. And uh, we are going to be tackling the security lighting above the door doorways of the entries of the buildings. So to reduce theft, to reduce vandalism, to have the community be uh, aware, because after the explosion with everything that has been broken and the streets that are completely dark, theft has increased tremendously. We even heard people stealing bags of blood from hospitals almost. So it's been going, it's been crazy in the dark. And the third level would be the street lighting. And it's also an added layer for security and safety for the residents and the neighborhoods. And hopefully this model could be developed and copied uh, throughout with time, even post, uh, the post disaster relief. And uh, this is uh, and hope that uh, it's quick, it's easy to install, and it can always be integrated in a larger scale grid in the future. But for now, this is something at least that will not go to waste. So Manal and Elizabeth, can you tell our audience how they can reach you? And if they want to donate, how do they do that? Yes. So we have a website. There's the website, which is with our partner, lightreachnet.com, uh, where there is a donation link with a brief describing the entire project. There is also a social media page with a link that will take you to that page, uh, which is at uh, light for lab And uh, basically, we are looking for uh, people to help us spread the word, spread the word to people who are interested in a sustainable solution in a country that needs it immediately and who would be willing to donate. And uh, yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah. That's, that's our plan. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's all the time we have today. Manal Kahale is a Lebanese lighting designer and a partner of Light for Lebanon. Elizabeth Boulos is a Lebanese lawyer trainee and legal consultant of Light for Lebanon. And Yehia Tashjian is a regional analyst researcher and the regional officer of Women in War, a gender-based think tank. Thank you all. That is it for today's show. A special thanks to our guests, Yehia Tashjian, Manal Kahale, and Elizabeth Boulos. And thank you for listening. Sona Region Radio is archived on kpfk.org. Next week, KPFK starts its fall fund drive. Please support us and KPFK by becoming a sustaining member. You can join KPFK's community of listeners by going to kpfk.org. On behalf of my co-host Soraya Zarouk and the entire Sona Region Radio Collective, I am Ankine Agassian. Until next time. <laughs>